We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Blue Wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, joined as always by my co-host Nick Villato. And on tonight's show, we got a little interesting interview for everybody. It's one I'm very excited about, one I've been waiting for. And I'm bringing on my buddy Joel Corey, who actually writes an article for CBS Sports every week that I'm lucky enough to edit. It's called Agent's Take. And it is an excellent look at salary cap situations around the NFL and different contract situations that you might potentially run into or be interested in from an agent's point of view a former agent's point of view Corey is a former sports agent he helped founded premier sports entertainment a sports management firm that represents athletes and coaches he also has a podcast inside the cap with joel Corey. that's something that i would definitely check out if you're interested in the salary cap how it affects all nfl teams across the nfl and he has some takes on the giants as well from time to time on there and again Check out that column, Agents Take, on CBS Sports. That thing is a monster. I love reading through that every single week. We're lucky to get Joel on. I'm really excited. We're about to have him on, and we're going to find out if my thoughts on the salary cap are justified or where he stands, because this remember, this is somebody who is an absolute expert on the cap, and I'm excited to get his point of view. As am I. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> We all think we get the cap loosely, but that stuff is actually incredibly complicated when you sit down with someone like Joel and they can explain all that kind of crap to you. And you end up <laughs> you end up kind of coming away being like, damn, that's that's a lot of knowledge right there that I wasn't really too privy to. So I think this is going to be an excellent interview. I'm excited for it. This is exactly right because I know a lot of us, even me and Nick from time to time, have been like, the Giants have 16.2 million. Now it's 521.2. Like you see everybody tweeting these numbers out and acting like they're so definitively right on cap situations. But there is a lot more to it. And Joel does a great job in this interview of breaking down exactly what is all about the cap, not just for the Giants, but overall. So without further ado, let's welcome Joel onto the show. 
All right, Joe. So let's start with the Giants. And if we have time, we'll work our way back to some 30,000-foot view questions of the salary cap. I know our listeners are interested in that. Um, but I'd love to get your opinions on the Giants first. So I'll start with this one, Joel. After a slew of performance-based contract escalators have kicked in, the Giants are currently projected to be slightly over the cap heading into this offseason. So on the surface, it would seem, at least based on that number, the Giants are in no position to sign free agents, let alone their own. But a quick peek into their 2022 cap situation shows they have projected $95 million right now. So with that said, Joel, do you expect the Giants to consider dipping a little into the future years of their uh, future cap years to a little more aggressive this year in free agency with Daniel Jones still on his rookie deal. Yeah, well, the time to amass talent is when you have a low-cost quarterback, and Daniel Jones, if he's going to be a starting quarterback after this rookie contract, will never be cheaper. So you need to kind of strike while the iron is hot. Plus, you play in a weak division that um, no one had an above 500 record to win the division. So uh, Joe Judge proved to be a better coach than we thought he was going to be, considering he was a special teams coach, that uh, that was kind of a uh, curious hire when it was made, but looks like one of the better hires. So, yeah, I think you uh, try to strike while the iron is hot, given the division you're playing in. Plus, you know if you're going to be competitive, you have to, because the Redskins are going to upgrade a quarterback, which should help them. And Dak's going to be back next year, so presumably Dallas will be better. Philly looks like they'll be bringing up the rear because their cap problems are going to make it tough for them to uh, really improve their roster, even though Howie Roseman's been able to pull rabbits out of the hat before. Yeah, that's, that's great, Joel. One idea that's been floated to create salary cap space for the Giants is to restructure the contract with James Bradbury and Blake Martinez, pushing back some of their remaining cap hit to the final year of their three-year contract in 2022. Also, on that same note, when they extend those contracts to create cap space would you consider that a viable strategy for the Giants this offseason uh, not necessarily the extension because typically teams don't extend contracts after the first season that a player has played under that contract uh, Bradbury in particular did a three-year deal for a reason he wanted another bite of the apple as opposed to going five years so you could uh, push cap obligations back into 2022, knowing that you would extend them in 2022 so the raised cap number wouldn't be as relevant. Um, one thing you could do is drop his base salary down to a million dollars. You convert $12.9 million into signing bonus and spread that bonus out over 2021 and 2022, and you're going to pick up $6.45 million in cap room that way. But you're going to have his uh, 22 cap number go from 16.5 to 22.95 in the process. That's interesting, especially when you consider that Giants are working with limited cap space this offseason, but when you get to next offseason, Solder will be off the books by that point and a few other contracts of that nature. So it almost makes sense to me to spread some of that cap hit to the later years, but we'll see what they do there. My question, my next question for you, Joe, would be surrounding Dalvin Tomlinson and Leonard Williams, who are both slated to become free agents this offseason. Is there a scenario you can envision where the Giants can re-sign both, maybe a tag on Tomlinson? Would that be in their best interest? Uh, my priority is Leonard Williams. One, Dave Gettleman give, didn't give up draft picks to have Leonard Williams play one and a half seasons for the Giants. Um, the franchise tag uh, decision last year was one that was widely criticized because it was 16.126 million, and 
the season he was coming off of to get the tag, the consensus opinion was nobody would pay him that as an average yearly salary. Now, fast forward a year later, the guy looks like what everyone envisioned him to be when he was a sixth overall pick, has 11 and a half sacks, has always been a guy who could play the run, had 62 quarterback pressures. I think that was like tied for third among interior defensive linemen in the NFL. So if I got to prioritize, it's Williams over Tomlinson. And if you clear enough cap space, you might have to contemplate a second tag at a 20% raise, which would be $19,351,200. Uh, Giants will probably have sticker shock on a long-term deal because after what William, Leonard Williams did, he's probably thinking, I should be paid like DeForest yeah. Buckner and Chris Jones. That's in the $20 million neighborhood, whereas it's easier to find run stuffers on the interior than it is someone who's got pass rushing ability on the interior. And we know that the Giants have felt that way to a degree because you had the ultimate run stuffer um, at one point in time and Damon Harrison and decided to let him go. Um, the thing with Tomlinson is they put a franchise tag on him. That number, if the it's going to be 7.61% of the cap, whatever the cap is. So at 175 million, that's 13.317 million. If the cap is somehow miraculously flat, doesn't go down, then we're talking 15.082 million. Now, in terms of nose tackles, run stuffers, top of that market's 13 million dollar neighborhood with Javon Hargrave and DJ Reader. So the tag, for looking at it from that standpoint, may not necessarily make sense for Tomlinson, but I do what I have to do to keep Leonard Williams, and then if Tomlinson gets sacrificed in the process, then if I make a choice, it's Williams over Tomlinson just because of the pass rushing ability that he has because he's a unique player that you got a guy that you can also play outside, play inside, do a lot of things with um, on the defensive line. So he would be my priority, Leonard Williams. Before we move past that one, I think you brought up a few interesting points that I wanted to touch on before we move past Leonard Williams down the Tomlinson discussion. The first would be, do you think that from your standpoint, your perspective, having worked in this business, the Giants could actually potentially get away with, with slapping the tag on Williams again? Because he was threatening holdout last offseason, even when he got slapped for the first time. Would that be something that's even possible? I and mean, the other thing you mentioned was you think the cap might be at $175 million. Do you have any idea right now, as of now, where do you see that? there's been a lot of speculation on the cap you know will it go will it go down will it actually come down or will it sell in around 75 million where do you stand on that as well well i'm operating right now under the assumption it's 175 million uh thinking that the league in the nflpa have really don't want the cap to drop that much they'll probably do everything possible to get it as close to where it currently is the game changer is if sometime between now and March that the uh, media rights deals, uh, new ones get done, then that'll be a huge game changer. But you have to operate, at least for the short term, the, the worst case scenario. And people who do cap planning with teams usually err on the side of caution in doing planning. Nobody could have contemplated the cap COVID-19 because conservative projections are 210 million. Um, pre-pandemic. Now, getting to Leonard Williams, the thing about the second tag is it becomes your friend. Because if you played on two tags 
they couldn't tag him a third time because the third tag is 144% of your second tag or the highest tag number in any position, which would be quarterback. So they're not going to put a third tag on him at a quarterback number. So if Leonard Williams, you know, wants to get tagged twice. We've seen it happen a couple of times. Kirk Cousins did it and left. Uh, Tremaine um, Johnson was tagged twice with the Rams, left for the Jets, which ended up being a bad deal for them. But Leonard Williams is young enough, or if push came to shove, he had to play on two tags. He probably wouldn't like it, but he could do it. And also playing on the second tag, if they tag him again, gives some leverage from the standpoint that, well, if you want to pay me like uh, Grady Jarrett, who is a pro bowler, $17 million per year, Leonard Williams is going to go, you know what, I'll just play on the tag and buy it next year, which would force Dave Gettleman, um, who is very vested in Land Williams because of the trade in the first tag, to probably um, end up uh, caving to whatever demands Leonard has are close to that. And just, oh, and one more question on Leonard Williams. Is there any possibility that he would demand edge type of franchise? tag numbers or an edge type of contract because he does play so many roles within Patrick Graham's system? Uh, yeah, well, technically how it works is the tag number is um, the position where you took the most snaps in the prior season. So that's something the league determines. The league determined he was a defensive tackle last year. I know Williams supposedly filed a grievance and they've been taking a sweet time if if it is still going through and coming to some determination um, because that would change um, what the tag number would be. But he's been he made $16.126 million this year, so I don't know if they'd go back and retroactively give him the different salary and then adjust it forward for the 120% increase off of if he wins the uh, agreements eventually. But, yeah, if I'm Williams, I'm taking the position – I'm a defensive lineman. I don't want to be constrained by defensive interior lineman money because you're capped at Aaron Donald at $22 million, whereas the edge rushers, we have Joey Bosa at $27 million, and you have Miles Garrett at $25 million. Those deals were done um, during the offseason, early part of training camp. Yeah, it's really interesting to see where they'll go with that. You know after, like you said, Joel, the Giants have invested a lot to acquire Leonard Williams. So at this point, it seems unlikely he will move on. There's also talk among Giants fans about potentially trading former 2017 first-round pick Evan Ingram, a player the Giants have picked up the $6 million fifth-year option on. If the Giants were to try to trade Ingram at this point in his contract, how would the current contract situation impact their leverage if they were successful in moving him? And how, or I'm sorry, and if they were successful in moving him, how would it impact their 2021 cap situation? Well, um, this is the last year, the 2017 draft class, where fifth-year options aren't fully guaranteed upon exercise. Right now, it's guaranteed for injury. First day of the 2021 league year on March 17th, it's fully guaranteed the $6.013 million. So they would pick up that full amount of cap space if they traded him someplace because there's no bonus proration. It's all base salary. So that would come off the books. Now, any team that is going to acquire Evan Ingram is probably going to want to sign for a long-term deal uh, just because otherwise he's a one-year rental. Um, I, If he stays on the roster, I'm having him play out the fifth-year option. Uh, he's probably, if he's going to look for a long-term deal, he's probably thinking, I'm better than Austin Hooper. 
Um, and he's going to look at Austin Hooper's depressed stats in Cleveland this year and try to justify getting more than $10.5 million per year. I wouldn't pay Evan Ingram $10.5 million per year to be on the Giants. Someone else wants to pay him that. Uh, knock, they can knock themselves out. A quick question on Evan Ingram as well. Does the Pro Bowl bid actually work against the Giants because he has that as leverage? Can he use that? Yeah, he can try, but the, we both know the only reason he's in the Pro Bowl is because George Kittle was hurt, and if Zach Ertz uh, stayed healthy, maybe at some point they utilize him the way they did in the past, and he goes to the Pro Bowl, um, and he's in, we don't know who really the offense were this year because no real game. But, yeah, that was a Pro Bowl berth that is probably the, one of the uh, – least effective ones in terms of having it affect a negotiation. You can say, well, I'm a pro bowler. We feel like, yeah, great. It doesn't mean anything to me. I ignore it if I'm a giant. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, everybody listening to this would agree with that as well. So there has uh, been discussion of Nate Solder potentially retiring this offseason. But regardless, after opting out of 2020, his contract carries over to 2021. I believe it's a 16.5 million 2021 cap hit with 10.5 million in dead cap. If the Giants were to make him a post-June cut, how would that impact the cap savings and dead cap involving releasing Nate Solder? Yeah, well, each team has two post-June one designations they can use each league year. Um, when you use them on a player, uh, you get to cut them early. And it's really set up, it's designed for a player to hit the market and get money elsewhere as opposed to what used to happen before the 2006 CBA put these post-June designations in. You, you have guys who would be on the roster, get cut June 2nd, there'd be a secondary free agent market, and teams would have a lot of money uh, to pay. So if players are at a competitive disadvantage. So what happens in this situation, then, if they use one on, on, on Nate, then they have to carry his uh, cap number and salary on the books until June 2nd. And then at that point, um, if they, when they did that, uh, his um, salary would come off the books and future proration doesn't hit the cap this year. It becomes a um, 2022 cap charge. So in this case, since he's got... 16 in cap, they, they, uh, cap number, 16.5 cap number, they'd save $10 million, um, this way, um, doing it that way. Yeah, it's really interesting, especially when you consider the Giants are in a much healthier cap position in 2022 than they are in 2021. If you consider the fact that maybe, you know, if things change on the COVID front, the cap could be significantly or, or at least a little bit higher in 2022. It'll be something to consider, I think. I got a question for you about an upcoming Giants potential contract goal, and this is Saquon Barkley, a very controversial figure right now among Giants fans. At least half the, half the fans love the pick, half the fans hate the pick. My expectation is that the Giants will re-sign Barkley next offseason if he returns to full health, and that would be year four of his five-year rookie contract. The deal I would expect to reset the market is the largest running back contract in history. In your estimation, given how we've seen the Todd Gurley and Zeke Elliott contracts play out, would allocating a large chunk of cap space to that position hold the Giants franchise back from building a winning roster? And if you were GM of a football team, would you ever make the decision to hand out a massive running back contract? I would be very reluctant to do so with a running back. I would go more the philosophy that I would churn running backs 
it would have to be a very special running back that's very dynamic in the passing game and also um, is a great rusher of the football for me to consider it. Barkley was probably going to be on track to be the highest paid running back had he returned to his rookie year form this year and not gotten hurt again. Um, he's going to have to have a great year to get in that to become the highest paid running back after the durability concerns. It's going to have to probably approach what he did his rookie year. And then I'm not going to pay him like McCaffrey because McCaffrey, Iron Man, previous two seasons, over 90% of the snaps, 1,000, 1,000 club, rushing and receiving yards this year, barely plays because of those sort of injuries. So, I wouldn't want to pay him any more than the $12, $13 million per year that we saw everybody else get um, this year. That's assuming he returns the form. That's the Joe Mixons. I call Kamara that because that last year's $25 million that he's never going to see, so it really averages 12 and a half over the first four. Uh, Derrick Henry's at 12 and a half. Dalvin Cook's in that same neighborhood. So I don't want to go above that if I'm going to pay him. Um, they have to make the decision on the fifth-year option by May 2nd. Um, the good thing in terms of the fifth-year option, even though the calculation has changed, it doesn't affect Barkley because old way or new way, it's going to be the same. It used to be strictly based on your draft position, so it would have been the transition number for running backs this year. Now, because he went to the Pro Bowl his rookie year, it's still going to be the transition uh, tag number. And running backs have been going backwards in terms of the tag numbers. And it can, it's, the transition tag number is going to be really low if it's a $175 million cap. It's going to be under $7 million. It's going to be like $6.92 million. Even if the cap stays flat, it's under eight, which is below what Kenyon Drake's was this year. It's going to be like $7.8 million. So that's not an absorbent amount for a fifth-year option, even though it would be fully guaranteed when you exercised it. But... Barkley's going to have to have a great year for me to be willing to extend him at the highest level. Even though you've seen more teams over this past offseason decide that they were going to invest in running backs. Um, you had multiple guys sign extensions, which flies in the face of my theory that you churn running backs. Yeah, it's interesting, Joel, because while I would love to have the optimism you have that Barkley needs some kind of unbelievable season to get that kind of money, Having followed the Giants long enough and John Mara, I think they view Barkley as a little bit more than a football player, as the face of the franchise, someone who's incredibly marketable and making them a lot of money off the field. So I, I don't really foresee the Giants slapping a tag on him. And I think you'll be surprised, Joel, but regardless of what he does, I think if he comes back healthy, he will get a massive deal with the Giants and maybe reset that market. I know it seems off from the football standpoint, but unfortunately, that, I, that's at least how I envision it playing out. But if you have well, there's, 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 oh, there's one other thing which cuts in favor of your position. Um, Dave Gettleman was in Carolina at one point in time, and they paid two running backs uh, to be in a timeshare at a high level, D'Angelo Williams and Jonathan Stewart. So he's, he's willing to pay two running backs like number one back, so maybe he's willing to pay uh, Saquon Barkley at the highest level, especially since he drafted him. He's vested in him too. So that also cuts in Barkley's favor. I wouldn't do it, but your, your point has a lot of merit. They've got – someone's never been afraid to pay defensive tackles or running backs. 
Absolutely not. Can you give the listeners a 3,000-foot view on the salary cap, just a more broad view, how teams kind of operate it, and anything else that might just improve our understanding of the caps? I feel like a lot of people don't necessarily fully understand how the cap is leveraged. Well, there's the league-wide cap, which is $198.2 million for the league year, which we're still in, 2020. Um, and there's something called the adjusted cap. The adjusted cap didn't come into play prior to the 2011 CBA for one reason. Um, before the 2011 CBA, you couldn't carry over unused cap room from one year to the next. That has basically made the cap much softer than it had been before. It's pretty much been a hard cap there. If you're like 198.2 or whatever the cap is, that's it. But I'll give you an example of how that works. The Colts um, for this league year, they carried over slightly more than $41.5 million of unused cap space from 2019 league year. So they have the highest adjusted cap in the league, which means that's how much they could actually spend cap-wise. And it was a little over $240.5 million, even though the cap is $198.2 million. So that's one of the ways where the actual league-wide cap doesn't necessarily apply to each individual team because every team's adjusted cap is different. Now, another thing which you've seen is some teams more so than others, namely the Saints, the Eagles, the Steelers, the Cowboys to some degree, take a credit card approach, kick the can down the road um, strategy to the salary cap where they're going to push today's cap obligations off till tomorrow. Now, that works all well and good when the cap goes up $10 million per year, 6 7 8% per year, which we had been seeing for the last few years. When the cap was pretty much flat, 2011, 12, 13, then you had a hard time doing that. Everyone's been caught flat-footed because of the uh, coronavirus and the way this season worked with revenues dropping. So... The Saints were going to be in a challenging situation regardless if the cap went up to 210, 215 because of how many cap commitments they have. But I've never seen a situation where a team is going in the offseason of a overage of more than $100 million. But um, that's one way you manage the cap on the opposite end of the spectrum. You do what Tampa Bay does with their contracts. They structure in what's called a pay-as-you-go model where your cap and cash numbers are the same. And you have higher cap numbers in the initial year because there's no signing bonus. And you have a roster bonus where it all counts in the first year. And you have salary guarantees, uh, which will mimic what the guarantees would be in a deal which had a signing bonus. And as long as you don't restructure those contracts, once the guarantees are up, you have maximum flexibility because if you cut somebody, there's no dead money or residual cap charge. So you can pick up tons of cap room by releasing players that you couldn't in a situation where you restructure contracts or even give a huge signing bonus. Yeah, it's really interesting, Joel, because both that way definitely seems like it will give you more flexibility and has higher upside. But floor for me, I would go really with that Saints-Eagles approach of just kind of dipping into future years because you keep dipping. You may have one crash season like you discussed with the Saints. And actually, for those of you who, and I know I introduced him in the intro, but if you want to check it out, Joel just did an excellent article breaking down that New Orleans Saints cap situation. But even though they may have this one crash here when Breeze retires, it feels like they can kind of get back on track quicker than people would think. Maybe one off 
these are two off-season max, and then they're kind of resetting. Um, and through these years, really through 2014 till now, the Saints have really done an excellent job getting a lot of big contracts on their salary cap. But I wanted to talk to you about the cap in general and my opinion of it, Joe, because I wanted to see just how wrong I might be, or maybe if I haven't, if I'm leading on to something. So it's been a running joke, Joel, with the listeners of this podcast that at one point I got carried away and trying to make a point. I said the salary cap is a myth. So I want to be clear once and for all. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I do not think the cap is a myth, but I do find the hard nature of the NFL's cap to be a bit exaggerated by fans and kind of mainstream NFL followers. When you look at examples, Joel, of the teams like the Saints have done since that 2014 season, they're not the only ones. Um, would you agree the hard nature of the cap, or at least in fans' general interpretation of the hard salary cap, is a bit exaggerated? And if not, if you don't agree with that, kind of break down why. No, you you, you have some merit to your point because those teams have been able to end up uh, being very competitive, extend their window of opportunity um, by manipulating the cap. Because one thing you can do, and it's what the um, uh, Saints did, which was a surprise the, that they were able to sign Jairus Bird as a free agent when they didn't had limited cap space by having a low first-year cap number and a ballooning second-year cap number, which gets to your point that you can manipulate or work around the cap by being creative. And then they restructured the contract in year two to lower the cap number. Now, where the cap matters is we see that with um, Jared Goff. Because uh, that huge cap number, that's one of the reasons they were trying to offload him. And then because they restructured the contract last year, not a full restructure, by taking as much money as possible and converting it to signing bonus, they did a modest amount. They're going to have $22.2 million in dead money. And when you take on Matthew Stafford's $20 million salary, um, they now have $42.2 million collectively in their cap charge as opposed to Goff's $34.95 million original cap hit. So they've added $7.25 to the cap um, to make that transaction. Maybe the moral story is don't pay the wrong quarterback and then try to move on from your mistake as quickly as possible because then um, there are going to be some unintended cap consequences. Yeah, Joel, it's interesting because that leads me to my next question, actually. It's a bit of a theoretical question if you – for you, kind of based on what we just saw go down with that golf trade, it's believed that one reason the compensation was so high for Stafford was because the Lions took on that contract. And it kind of leads me to a theory I'd love to explore with you and your get your take on. Given the nature of what quarterback contracts like Goffs can do to a team's cap situation, a friend of mine, Nick Wellen, actually posed the idea of drafting a quarterback in the first two rounds of every class, being very careful not to re-sign them to a massive deal unless they emerge as a top five QB, and then continuing that process until you find that top five QB. In this scenario, you could trade away a QB prior to your four or five as rookie deal, and if he has any value. And most importantly, you would always have a quarterback on a rookie contract rather than a Goff-type deal. What do you think of this idea? Well, we saw a team which looked like they were doing that, but it didn't necessarily work out that way because one of the quarterbacks didn't cooperate by um, um, defying father time and still is. New England drafted Jimmy Garoppolo in the second round in 2014, um, thinking he might be the heir apparent to Tom Brady. And then they drafted Jacoby Brissett, not in the second or first, but in the third round in 2016. For some inexplicable reason, they traded Brissett away after his uh, rookie year. 
And I think if Bill Belichick had been left to his own devices, I always thought this was more of a Robert Kraft decision not to uh, move on from Brady because the Patriot way, in my opinion, is it's better to get rid of a player a year too early as opposed to a year too late. That's applied to everybody but Tom Brady. That Jimmy Garoppolo would have been the quarterback and they would have dealt Brady. So um, I don't think it's going to gain a lot of traction, at least not in the short term, because the reason why you have teams make some of the quarterback decisions they have is fear of the unknown. We saw Chicago Bears pay Jay Cutler when Josh McCown was out playing him when Cutler got hurt because they weren't convinced McCown was a guy and Cutler had the major arm talent was a first-round pick, even though he never lived up to his potential. So fear of the unknown in the past drove a lot of quarterback decisions, still does um, to a degree, but the more teams make mistakes like golf and what appears to be Carson, Car- Carson Wentz, I think the more your position is going to have merit in the future. We, we can't get teams to really churn running backs yet, so until the running back churning becomes – the definitive way you deal with running backs, I don't think it's going to totally apply to quarterbacks. Yeah, Joel, we actually have a couple listener questions. Do you have a time? Uh, we can do one. You can do one? All right. Yeah. All right. Let's do this one from Hit and Run 7 Deuce. He asks, how would you, how would Joel rate Odell Beckham's trade value pre-extension versus post-extension, i.e., in Joel's mind, the Giants paying guarantees and eating, and eating dead money, did that end up netting them more than they would have if they traded him prior to the fifth-year option, or on the fifth-year option, sorry. Um, they, well, we wouldn't have the contract in place because then the new team's going to have to go out and do the contract and the Giants ate the, the signing bonus. So that was an attractive feature for the team, for, for the Browns to acquire him because he's cost control as opposed to now you have to go out and paying the going rate. So that may have lessened the trade compensation slightly. Um, So I think that Beckham from when he signed the extension to when he was traded, there wasn't a marginal difference in it. And it's his ability. Now, if you tried to trade him, the Browns, that's a different story because he's coming off the knee injury to me. If you're going to trade Odell Beckham Jr. now, or you have designs to trade him, you let him get back on the field and start to show that he's healthy and try to showcase him, or not necessarily showcase him, but have him show that there's no residual effects to the knee injury and then move him on, move him if the same chemistry problems that existed while he was playing with Baker Mayfield um, continuing to 2021. Awesome stuff, Joel. Thanks again for joining the Big Blue Banter podcast. You guys know where to find Joel. If not, go back to the intro. Definitely follow all of his work, not just on CBS Sports, because that's a shameless plug on his podcast and everything else. Joel, thanks again for joining us, and I hope you have a great rest of your week out there in Vegas. Thanks, Joel. Oh, you too. Thanks for having me. All right. That was excellent stuff, Nick. Excellent stuff. I mean, the quality, we apologize, everybody. It wasn't the best. Skype isn't exactly the best recording tool because you got to convert the MP4 to the MP3. But nevertheless. That's a little inside big blue banter for you. Yeah. (laughs) Nevertheless, it's still quality information. I learned a ton from Joel, and he's going to be somebody that I'm going to ask questions to whenever I have some of these questions about the Giants cap going forward. Yeah, Joel has given me an open line. I already had it as his editor for CBS Sports, but I will let you guys know. If you guys have any other cap questions, hit me up. Let me know. I was happy to get one 
listener question. We re- did run a little short on time, but hit and run do 72. Hit and run do 72. You got yours in, so hopefully that was what you were looking for. And everybody else, if you want to do us a favor and go ahead and give us a rating, review, subscribe to our podcast on, on iTunes, and download. Make sure you don't just hit the listen button, download. That's all we'll ever ask. It helps us grow the show. It makes a massive difference. We'll never ask for anything else, but we will continue to ask for this. So please take the time. Go give us a rating and review on iTunes and make sure you download and subscribe. And also remember, follow us on Instagram, NYBigBlueBanter. That's NYBigBlueBanter on Instagram. That is a very active account, and it is growing. We put up clips. We put up graphics. We put up engagement. So it's a great time over there on Instagram with NYBigBlueBanters. Follow us there. Otherwise, have a great rest of your week and be on the lookout because we will be dropping a prospect profile very soon. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com